This morning we'll be concluding this chapter. We ended last week in the middle of a very brief pericope from verse 39 to verse 40. We'll begin with verse 40 this morning, but just to give context for most of your Bibles, I'll read that 39th verse, and then we'll go all the way through the end of the chapter. Remember as I read that these are the words of the Lord. And when they had finished everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city of Nazareth. Now the child continued to grow and became strong, being filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. And his parents would go down to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he became 12 years old, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning, after finishing the days of the feast, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But his parents did not know. Supposing him to be in the caravan, they went a day's journey, and they began searching for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. And it happened after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astounded at his understanding and his answers. When they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Child, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. And he said to them, Why is it that you were searching for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand the statement which he had spoken to them. And he went down to them and came to Nazareth. And he continued in subjection to them. And his mother was treasuring all these things in her heart. And Jesus was advancing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. And thus far is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. As we always do each Sunday morning, we'll ask God's blessing on this time before we begin. <laughs> Father, your word presents to us many things. Many things that create questions in our mind. None more significant than the incarnation of your Son. And this morning as we look at this text, would you help us to see clearly the God-man, Jesus Christ, and to love Him for even his, this one boyhood event that we have of His life. And desire to know Him more because of it. It's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Well, church, the most baffling mystery that the world has ever known is the incarnation of Jesus, God who became man. And it raises no shortage of questions, this incarnation. How can one fathom a God who left His place in heaven and took on human form. How much of Him in human form is still deity? And then how much of Him is humanity? For example, do His cells contain deity? Or do His genes or His subatomic structure? How can He be 
omniscient, knowing all things. And yet it says here in our text this morning that he had to learn. How can he be omnipotent when the Bible clearly teaches that he grew in strength? If he is God, then how does he grow in favor with God? Along with these questions have come sundry answers, most of them very bad ones. In 361 AD, Apollinaris became bishop of Laodicea. He said that Jesus Christ had a physical body, but, but he had a mind and a spirit that was not physical. His mind and his spirit were divine in nature. Around 400 AD, the Nestorians began to circulate a dualistic approach in contrast to what Apollinaris said. They said that there are two different persons in Christ. There is a, a divine person and there is a human person. Also in the 4th century, the monophysites argued that Jesus' human nature was completely absorbed into the divine nature. And what ended up happening was the creation of an entirely different nature, a kind of third-way nature, if you will. He's part God and part man. So to make sense of the incarnation of the God-man, Jesus Christ, people have tried to separate Jesus into parts, propagate more than one Jesus to make sense of the different parts, and unbiblically assimilate the divinity and humanity of our Savior into a new creation. Which, all of these, leave us with an inadequate Savior. One who is actually not qualified to save us from our sins. He's incapable of helping and rescuing sinners. At the Council of Chalcedon, which was in 451 A.D., each of the above postulations were refuted as heresy, and an orthodox summary of the Bible's teaching on Jesus was agreed upon by the Council of Churches. It's worth my reading to you in full this morning. This is a rather lengthy quote, but it's good for our ears to hear, especially at the outset of this text. Council of Chalcedon said, We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of a reasonable or rational soul and body, consubstantial or coessential with the Father according to Godhead and consubstantial with us according to manhood. So Jesus shares both Godhood with God and shares manhood with us. In all things like unto us, yet without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead, and in these latter days, for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God, according to the manhood. One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, yet without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, 
the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son, and only begotten God, the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning Him. And the Lord Jesus Christ Himself has taught us, and the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. And all of God's people should say, Amen. Amen. So why take the time to include this at the outset of today's sermon? Before Luke dives into the earthly ministry of Jesus, he wants Theophilus to see one other thing. Another contrast, if you will, between Jesus and his cousin and companion, John the Baptist. And this will be the most significant contrast by far. This boy, born in Bethlehem, was in every way a man. He was a very special man with a very special mission. The same could be said of John the Baptist. But by contrast, the boy Jesus was also God. He was fully God. He was the Son of God, the second member of the Holy Trinity, existing infinitely into the past alongside the Father and the Spirit. And Luke shows us here in this one person these two natures. He shows us a Jesus who learns and yet a Jesus who knows where he must be. He shows us a Jesus who submits to his earthly parents and then one who identifies God as his true father. Now we bring our questions to the text of scripture and Luke will ignore most of them. But what he does is introduce to us a man who was God, the only son of the father, whose mission was to make each of us sons and daughters of the father. C.S. Lewis once said, the son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. Well, this morning's text concludes the preface to Luke's gospel and the introduction of John and Jesus. You remember at that outline that I gave you at the beginning of our study of Luke, there are five points, and today we'll conclude the first one, which takes up chapters one and two. Next week, we'll begin part two of our study, which is Jesus' preparation for ministry. That's chapters three and then the first half of chapter four. I want to begin the sermon this morning by examining the bookends of this passage. We're going to look at verse 40, and then we're going to look at verse 52, how these verses are similar in what they tell us about our Lord. Luke kind of bookends this pericope with these words. Now the child continued to grow and become strong, being filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. And Jesus was advancing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Outside of this brief temple narrative we have here in Luke 2, these two verses are the only information we have about the development of the Lord Jesus from the baby in the manger 
to the adult Jesus who goes to be baptized by John. If you'll look at chapter 2, verse 16, Luke calls him there a baby, a brephos, the Greek word is. And then if you'll skip down to chapter 2, verse 40, he calls him a pideon, or a little child. And then in verse, or excuse me, chapter 2, verse 43, he calls him a pice, or just a child, simply a, a growing child. And finally, in verse 52, he's just called Jesus. He's reaching adulthood. Baby, little child, growing child, and now a man. In every way, Jesus, the man, grew into adulthood, just like each of us does. From these two verses, verses 40 and 52, we see that Jesus grew in strength, he grew in wisdom, he grew in stature, and he grew in favor. If you can imagine this, the Bible says that he grew in increasing favor, not just with men, but with God. Now, what are we to make of this learning and growing of Jesus? If he is fully God, how in fact can he learn things? If he is fully God, then how can his favor with God increase? It should be perfect. It should be complete all the time, right? As I said in the introduction, Luke isn't writing a systematic theology. He's recounting the history as it happened in the physical human life of the Lord Jesus. But notice what you do see in Jesus' growth and development. You see a boy growing up into manhood who is at the same time completely unhindered by the chains of enslavement to sin. He represents, even here in his youth, the new humanity. The second humanity, the free humanity, that humanity which God is driving his church towards, the final fulfillment. If you grew up apart from Christ, you can likely remember times when sin in your younger days was holding you back, when you made silly choices, when you engaged in foolishness. I remember when I was young, only desiring things that served my own interests. I didn't want to learn. I mean, what fun is learning anyway? I wanted the things that made me happy. I wanted what gave me a sense of fulfillment. Perhaps you felt the same. Looking back on your depravity, have you ever felt like this? Like the writer of Proverbs who said, How I have hated discipline. My heart spurned reproof. I've not listened to the voice of my instructors. I've not inclined my ear to my teachers. I was almost in utter ruin in the midst of the assembled congregation. It's Proverbs 5, verses 12 through 14. If you've read C.S. Lewis's Narnia series, you may remember the character Shasta from The Horse and His Boy. Shasta lived a very cruel life and... He endured some very real abuse. He went through some very difficult things. But if you've read the story, you know that Shasta spends the majority of the book feeling sorry for who? For himself. In spite of all the wonderful providences that take place over the, the course of that story, 
things that were unconditionally bestowed upon him. For example, he was able to escape from an abusive slave master on a talking horse. And his miraculous crossing of a massive desert with very little water. And how he was able to scare away a giant lion simply by saying, Go home, go home, and wagging his arms. Toward the end of his journey, exhausted and eager for rest, he is told that he must not stop, but he must run on foot to get to King Loon before the approaching army of Kalorman arrives. In Lewis's words, Shasta's heart fainted at these words, for he felt that he had no strength left, and he writhed inside at what seemed like the cruelty and unfairness of the demand. He had not yet learned that if you do one good deed, your reward usually is to be set to do another, and a harder, and a better one. Imagine your childhood for just a moment. Perhaps there were plenty of instances where you despised God's providences. Now you look back on it and you see God's wisdom in it all. Perhaps you were full of complaints. You were rejecting God's wisdom. You were longing for only what seemed good to you at the time. This was never the case for the Lord Jesus. As the new and better Adam without a trace of sin to cause conflicts in his heart in any way, he grew. In every good way, he grew, as they say, by leaps and bounds. R.C. Sproul summarized it this way. Jesus continued to grow, not as we do sometimes, from sinfulness to obedience, but he moved from faith to faith, from grace to grace, from strength to strength, from obedience to higher levels of obedience. You can kind of hear where Lewis got that idea for Shasta. Because as he, Jesus, increased in his understanding and knowledge of what God had called him to do, he had a greater capacity for deeper levels of obedience. He grew, Jesus did, from one grace to the next, in greater and greater measure, in his youth, filling up his mind with wisdom and knowledge that would one day overflow onto humanity. And we're going to learn about that for the rest of the gospel. Fully God and yet fully man. But better than man, he was the inaugural new man. And church, perhaps the best thing that I'll say to you this morning is this. If you have put your faith in Christ... Jesus has already made you, as well, a part of this new humanity. Listen to the way that the Amplified Bible phrases the familiar words in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that is, grafted in, joined to him by faith in him as Savior, he is a new creature, that is, reborn and renewed by the Holy Spirit. The old things, the previous moral and spiritual condition, have passed away. Behold, the new things have come because spiritual awakening brings a new life. I love the way that that's phrased. 
the previous moral and spiritual condition has passed away. Past tense. It's already gone. The old man that can't choose to do anything else but seek his own intentions and his own desires, to seek his own glory, which that old man that made decisions from a place of idolatry and blindness to the truth, that man to which you were enslaved and could not help but not obey, the Bible tells us that if you're in Christ, that man is dead. Romans 6.6, 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. What this means is that sin no longer has the power to hold you back from growing into the fullness of Christ. You are now a part of the new race of men and you are free to grow. You've been set free from complaining. You've been set free from bitterness. You've been set free from addiction, from anger, from lust, from laziness, from partiality, from rebellion to God-appointed authorities, from emotionally driven attitudes, from a crass mouth, from an unwilling heart. You've been set free. You've been set free because through faith in Christ, you now know the Lord. You've been set free so that God calls you son and you call him father. You've been set free by the law of God, which has now instead been written on your heart. You've been set free by the spirit of Jesus who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You've been set free to pursue the ministry or missions or just being faithful in this local community. If you have, by faith, received Christ, you are currently, if you can believe this, it's the best thing I can say to you today. If you are in Christ, you are currently enslaved to zero sins anymore. None. You are free, just like Jesus, to grow up in every way, strength, stature, wisdom, grace, favor with God and men, you are free to grow up in every way into the likeness of your elder brother. So, stop sinning. Just stop. Knock it off. Give yourself to Jesus. Give yourself as a slave to righteousness because Jesus has already set you free. Now, you look at those bookends and you see how Christ grew and you see the image that we're being called up into, the freedom that we've been given. But Luke takes us further in this passage. We come to this unique story in verses 40 to 51 of the preteen Jesus. In verse 41 we read, His parents would go up to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. Again here we see Joseph and Mary in what we've seen them this entire time, consistent obedience to the law of God. They would make this pilgrimage each year without fail all of Jesus' childhood. And the Bible tells us in the next verse that in his 12th year, they did the same thing. They went up like they usually did to make their way to Jerusalem. Now, let's just pause and consider for a moment, parents. 
the impact of your regular attendance to the gathering of the saints. Consider what it says to your children that your family consistently meets for worship each Sunday. Studies show that parents who are regular and active in church catechize that same devotion in their children generation after generation after generation, just by example. Consider what it says to your wife and children that you're a little shifty on the uh, attendance at prayer meeting each week. It's week to week whether or not your family will make it to prayer meeting, and the expectation is from the majority of the household, that you'll come up with some excuse not to attend. Christ the King, you know, is where it is today, only because of the grace and favor of God. We believe that this grace and favor He has given to us by His undeserved will to us, His undeserved kindness to us, that He's given it to us in answer to our prayers. Father, I encourage you, start prioritizing the weekly prayer meeting or even the Sunday morning service. Make sure that these are a priority for the sake of your children. We go on to verse 42. And when he became 12 years old, they went up according to the custom of the feast. Now, this is important to know that Jesus is 12 because it was 13 years old when Jewish boys would have been considered adults. They would have been spoken to as men, and they would have been held accountable to God for their actions and beliefs. At this point, at 12 years old, Jesus would have still been expected to be under the authority of Joseph. But at age 12, whose authority does he claim? In verse 49, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's go on. And as they were returning... After finishing the days of the feast, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents did not know. But supposing him to be in the caravan, they went a day's journey. They began searching for him among their relatives and acquaintances. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Most of us have heard this story, and I know you've probably read it in the past, especially if you're a parent. You've read this passage and you know you've chuckled a little bit inside. This is kind of comical. They left on a three to four day journey home and they left their son. As a parent, you're wondering, okay, there's probably some context here. Maybe I'm missing some details. How did that happen? Joseph and Mary were given the task to parent the Lord. Okay, you have one job. <laughs> you would think that when you got into the caravan, somebody would call roll, right? When you get in the van and make sure everyone's there. This story just cracks me up. I've been told all of my life that you can't lose your salvation. How did Joseph and Mary manage to do that? <laughs> Make sure that got in there. And yet, this is what I marvel at. We read this story, and, and, and we may be confused. We may laugh. We may think there's something missing in the translation. But Luke does not go out of his way to cast blame on anybody. 
Okay, he's just, for the most part, recounting the historical events that led up to this moment. Remember that the childhood of the Lord Jesus, to use our modern term, was very family integrated. A Jewish household was seldom separated from one another. Even Joseph's carpentry business was probably done in the context of his own home, and Jesus was certainly a part of that business. He was probably home with his mother when she gave birth to his other earthly siblings. He saw extended family members grow old and die, likely in the context of his own home, likely his own earthly father too. Joseph is not spoken of in the New Testament. It's likely he's passed away at that point. Trips out of town were always family affairs. As you see here in the text, their whole family would go up to the feast. And that included extended family as well. But here's something that's important to know. It was common in those days when they would go in these large caravans for the women and the younger children to lead the caravan, to go out at the front of the caravan. And the men and the older children, particularly those boys over the age of 13, would be at the back of the caravan, picking up the rear, making sure the defensive position was set up in case there were any robbers or bandits. So you can see in verse 44 that Jesus' parents had their own suppositions. They supposed him to be with the rest of the group. Well, Mary's likely at the front of this train. Joseph's likely at the back. Jesus is right at that age where oh, he, he could be at the back, but he could be at the front. What happened? Well, we talked about this last night with our children. Mary's thinking he's with Joseph. Joseph's, well, he's not quite old enough yet. He's got to be with his mother. So they get a full day out of town before they realize that Jesus, completely free from sin, made the choice to stay behind and speak with the rabbis in the temple. And I'll get to more on that in just a minute. First, let me say this. Christ the King is a family-integrated church, which is a fancy way of saying we do church the way that it has been done for roughly 1,900 years. We don't give up the training of our little ones in the pew for the temporary ease of a nursery, or hand over our teenagers' discipleship to some unqualified, barely legal, and sexually frustrated youth guy <laughs> or girl. Family integration sounds nice. It sounds like the right way of doing things. But you know, if you've tried it for any length of time, it's not a silver bullet. Just because your kids sit in the pew with you each week does not guarantee that they're going to turn out right. If you, like Joseph and Mary, had some suppositions about how your family's regular attendance to the temple or the gathering of the saints, the New Testament, is supposed to work, but it doesn't seem to be working, let me offer you four things to consider in regards to parenting in the pew. Number one, parenting in the pew begins at home. Parenting in the pew begins at home. Your children should know what you expect from them on a Sunday morning. They should know that they're to sit still, listen during the service, and sing during the music, so on and so forth. Read the catechism, those sorts of things. But if you only do a rehearsal for this every Sunday morning for about an hour and 45 minutes, they probably won't ever be able to meet those expectations. It's just not enough time for them to learn. During family worship, have your children practice sitting still and listening to dad read the Bible. 
they should, starting at six months old with practice, be learning to sit through a 15-minute Bible story, prayer, and singing time. They should be taught to stay still and only speak when called upon. They should not be allowed to fuss or check out or roll on the floor or try and grab your cell phone. And age matters here. A crying infant is different from a screaming one-year-old or a screaming two-year-old. Baby noise during Bible time or the Sunday service can be expected. Babies can't control themselves. But a screaming child, however, should be told one time to stop. And if they don't obey, they need to be removed and, talk, uh, and walk through discipline. Number two, speaking of discipline, don't neglect discipline for bad behavior. I've heard parents say things like, I don't want to discipline my children during family worship because I want to create in their minds a very positive image, a very fun time. They have memories where it was always happy and never sad. Well, I will tell you that the Bible commands the rod for all times when a child is in rebellion, not just during those in-between times, the daily doldrums, if you will. A disobedient child should be spanked. But make sure that that child is in fact disobeying you. At the beginning of your family worship, ask the children to each fold their hands and listen carefully. And after about five or ten minutes, the younger ones may need a reminder, their attention spans. If they disobey a direct command, they should be lovingly disciplined. And when you return, ask them to sit still, fold their hands, and start reading again. The third thing, increase training over time. Once your child learns to sit still for 15 minutes, you can increase the time to 20 minutes, 25, and so on. You don't have to do this in the context of family worship. As elders, we recommend you try and keep your family worship times fairly brief. 15 minutes is a good time frame to think. Sometimes they go a little shorter. Sometimes they go a little longer. But when you're looking for extended times to practice and get their mental muscles and self-control and discipline, those things in practice... Tammy and I used to put on sermons that we'd like to watch, and we'd have the kids sit still and act like they would when they were in church. I'd also recommend asking that the children do this without the aid of drawing pads or a toy or some other distraction, especially while they're young. If you have them with these implements while they're little, it's going to be much harder to separate them from those things as when they get older. The last thing I would encourage you to do as regards parenting in the pew is embrace your season of life. When you're a father or mother of lots of littles, it can be frustrating to have to lead church so frequently. You see other parents with big kids who look like they have it all together. Those kids sit so perfectly. Please don't fool yourself. Those of us who have older children can tell you, even though you might look occasionally and see, oh, their children are always sitting still, we're always having to parent. There are no parenting-free zones. If you have a lot of littles, you may want to lean on those big girls in the church from other families who want to hold your little one during the service so that you can pay attention. And I understand the draw to this. I'm not saying that it's always wrong. I'm also thankful for the young ladies in our church who are embracing their created nature. They're already fostering that desire of one day wanting to be mothers. It's a beautiful thing. 
There are also mothers in our church who have unique situations and occasionally need the additional help. But if you have lots of littles, remember this overarching thing. You're in a season of life where you should be resigned to leaving church as frequently as is needed to discipline your child. And I'm primarily talking to dads here. Fathers, you may be back and forth to correct behavior over 20 times in one service. That number, if you are diligent to discipline, will go down over time. It will. If you are consistent, it will drop rapidly. Lamentations 3 verse 27 says, It is good for a man that he should bear the yoke while he is still young. There were many years when Tammy or I only heard a few minutes of the sermon each Sunday, and that's okay. You can pick it up later on a podcast or on YouTube. You can do it with your children in training time where you sit and you practice this throughout the week, and you can catch up on the things that you missed out on. If you see that you've neglected a duty to shepherd in this way, begin as Joseph and Mary did. Okay, they're already a day's journey away from Jerusalem. And nope, there's a problem. We're going to turn right back around. It's interesting. The text uses past tense. They searched everywhere for Jesus in the caravan, and they did not find him. And then Luke turns to the present tense, and then they were searching for him in Jerusalem. They didn't give up. They searched, and then they went on searching. They kept pursuing their family until everybody was back together again. The family was whole, and everybody was headed back in the proper direction. Be encouraged, church. God will bring change if you're faithful to Him. He will. This is just a brief season of life you're in if you have littles. That child, before you know it, is going to be walking a marriage aisle. And you're going to be saying goodbye to them. Give yourself to this time of parenting on the Sunday morning and also at home so that your children can learn, too, to sit still and listen to the Word of God and hear it. Be saved and be discipled. Now, over the course of three days, we go on in the text, verses 40 to 46, Joseph and Mary's search led them back to Jerusalem, where they found their son somewhere on the temple grounds interacting with the Jewish rabbis. And it happened that after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astounded at his understanding and his answers. Now it was common in those days that after the feast was over, the rabbis would hold theology discussions. Okay? They would get the men together and they would discuss the current issues of the day and they'd go back and forth with ideas. Well, what do you think about the Messiah? When's he coming? What do you think about this particular Jewish law or that Jewish law? And they would do this while their own disciples were sitting at their feet. Jesus will, throughout the course of this gospel, be known as didaskalos. He will be the teacher. But here we see him in the place of a learner. This informal classroom time was officiated in a, a Socratic style with pupils asking questions of the rabbis. And often in return, the rabbi would answer their question with a question. So you can see how Jesus was occasionally put on the spot. He would ask a question to the rabbis. They would in turn ask him a question. And then what happens? He would give an answer and everybody was astounded. How did such a young one give such an answer? Where does he get this wisdom? Where does he get this insight? 
Now, it's in the midst of one of these gatherings that his parents discover his whereabouts. They're at the same time relieved. They're astonished at what's going on. It's kind of been a pattern for Mary and Joseph to this point. Astonished, astonished, astonished every way. This child is astonishing them. And and then they're also ready with a, a bit of a reprimand. You can see that in verse 48, Mary, the prominent parental figure, again in this dialogue. Child, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Now, verse 50 is going to make clear that Joseph and Mary didn't really understand what was going on. But let me say this, children. If you hear me now, children, be found by your parents in pursuit of righteousness. Whenever your parents are looking for you, be found in pursuit of righteousness. Even if your parents find you in the act of what looks like wrongdoing, Let it be that you were actually there because you wanted to do good. Parents, do your research before jumping to discipline. God will hold you accountable for presumptuous parenting. Leave room for the child to make a respectful appeal, as Jesus is offered here. But young ones, may your father and your mother find you in any instance they're looking for you, living for God. May they find you hanging out with good friends, having heavenly-minded conversations with those friends, rejecting passivity, worldliness, and foolishness. And children, I would also say this to you. Gladly submit to your imperfect parents. Jesus' parents get it wrong in this case. We'll see that in just a moment. But the Bible says in verse 51 that he rises, returns, And is submissive to them anyway. God sees. God knows. And God will not hold back a blessing from those children who honor their father and mother. He's promised to do so. From the pen of Pastor J.C. Ryle. Christian children ought to be steady and trustworthy behind the backs of their parents. As well as before their faces. They ought to seek the company of the wise and prudent to use every opportunity of getting spiritual knowledge before the cares of life come on them and while their memories are fresh and strong. And now, in our text, we come to the first recorded words in all the life of the Lord Jesus. Interesting note, before I read them, these words are directed towards a woman. And Jesus' first words after his resurrection are also directed towards a woman. We'll see that later on in the gospel. In the Socratic style, our Lord offers his parents his own rhetorical question. Why is it that you were searching for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? Now I wonder, for those of you who read this passage to your children sometime this week, maybe yesterday during family worship, how many of them raised their hand and said, Dad... It really sounds like Jesus is talking back to his mom. Dad, it's like he was saying, well, you should have known where I was. Which, if any child were to say something like that to their parents, they should be suddenly disciplined. Now, this isn't a challenge. Jesus has lived with his parents 
for 12 years now. All the things that amazed the rabbis at this point, Joseph and Mary have lived with for 12 years. They've been around this boy for a long time. They've grown up hearing him. After 12 years, there is a bit of a question. How is it not plain who this boy is? How is it not plain whose this boy is? How is it not plain at this point what this boy's mission on earth was truly to be? This is a respectful yet pointed rhetorical answer, which essentially makes a statement. I am my father's. I must obey my father. I must be in his house. Or your translation might read, I must be about his business. Now we're back again at that confusing place that I talked about in the opening, the hypostatic union of Jesus. That perfect harmony between Jesus' divinity and his humanity. If he's God, well, of course he had to be in his father's house. But if he's man, shouldn't he have followed his parents in the caravan? If he was omniscient, wouldn't he have known that that was what the law would have wanted him to do? You obey your parents, so you should follow them in the caravan? And when did he figure out his mission anyway? This I had to be statement is important in Luke. Every time Jesus will use it in the rest of the gospel, he then goes on to say, this is my mission. My mission is I have to be in my father's house. My mission is I have to seek and to save the lost. And he's going to use this term over and over again. Did he know about his coming crucifixion at this point? Even when his human brain had not reached that ability to think abstractly as children go through those different cognitive stages. How far back could Jesus remember? Could he think all the way back into eternity past? In 2020, I attended the G3 conference in Atlanta. And I don't remember much about that conference, but I do remember that one speaker in particular said something that was highly controversial. He had a hypothesis that the boy Jesus may have, he was trying to be careful with his words, in his younger years, not remembered a time when he was part of the Trinity. Now, I know that's dangerous for me to even say, quoting someone else. The point that we need to see in this text is Luke doesn't want us mulling over any of that. That's not the point of why this is here. The secret things belong to Yahweh, our God, Deuteronomy 29, 29. I'm not saying that you can't wonder at the miracle of the incarnation. You look at verse 51, that's what Mary did. Again, here she is, treasuring all of these things in her heart. She's perplexed. Who is this boy? He says that I'm supposed to know him, but I feel like there's so much that I still don't know. I don't understand his mission. What does he mean by he's got to be in his father's house? I mean, his father and... I, but, but the angel's message, and, and she's mulling all of these things over. It would seem that Luke expects this pondering response to be the case for all of us who read this gospel. But Luke wants us to get something big before we go on to chapter 3. However much Jesus knew, or what he had to learn, did he have to go through times tables, 
Did he have to learn how to read and write? All of those things. We do know this. Jesus knew who his father was. And because he knew who his father was, he knew what he should be about. He knew what he should be doing. If you have trusted in Christ alone for your rescue from sin, then you are, the Bible says, a son of God, a daughter of God. And as a son of God, you know the will of God through the word of God, shared amongst the people of God. And we're to follow our elder brother Christ's example and live as new men and new women in this world. We have the freedom in Christ now to choose not to sin, as Hebrews 12 puts it, to throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and to run with perseverance the race marked out for us. We will at times fail, but in repenting to the Father through Christ, we have an infinite number of try-agains. And over time, God promises us that we will grow and that one day we will look just like Jesus. As we grow, we're going to look less and less like this world and we're going to look more and more like citizens of heaven. And the world will have to face that crossroads moment when it comes into contact with new men and new women like this. They're going to be the ones with questions. They will have to face the mystery of Christ in us, the hope of glory. And so maybe the biggest question that we face today is, but is that really what the Bible teaches? Can this really happen? Can I really choose not to sin? Can I really grow up in every way into him who is the head? By leaps and bounds, with joy, the joy that was set before him, that joy set before me as well? Of course this is what the Bible teaches. But in order for this to take place, we must do what God has commanded. We must follow Jesus. We must follow Jesus in seeking the Father's hand, to be found in his house, and to be about his business. And all who do so are promised one day that they will be also with him in heaven. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. We thank you for this brief window into the life of the Lord Jesus and what it teaches us about who he has created us in him to be, having the very power of his Holy Ghost within us, teaching us to love righteousness and hate wickedness. Having been set free from sin, Lord, we can truly resist it at every turn. But, oh, Lord, how we need your help. Oh, like Jesus, how we must regularly be in pursuit of the Father. We must want and desire to know his will. We must be regularly with his people in the worship of him. And, oh, Lord, we find ourselves, because of the cares of life and our own sinful tendencies that we're still hiding, giving quarter to, we find ourselves so often incapable of doing this. Would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, give a miraculous, powerful imposition of a desire in each of us to do just like Jesus, to be after the favor of our Father and to be about his business doing his will. We pray these things in his name. Amen.